Coming up on Tech Nation, Michael Shermer joins us with Heavens on Earth, the scientific search for the afterlife, immortality, and utopia. For all the seven and one-half billion humans on the planet, we discover who believes or does not believe there will be an afterlife. Then on Tech Nation Health, Professor Carl Ware, the director of the Infectious and Inflammatory Disease Center at the Sanford Burnham Prebys Medical Discovery Institute. We have a wide-ranging conversation about their research. All this coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. There are plenty of old sayings, many of which we know to be privately true. Take, you are what you eat. No one follows you around day and night, recording every morsel. So more or less, we can likely agree, at least quietly, that it's true. Same goes for, you are what you repeatedly do. Most of what we do, nobody notices, not even ourselves. So what may turn out to be important in its very repeating is often not noticed. But let's say that we repeatedly procrastinate. We all know there are consequences. You say to yourself, Oh, I need to do this, but then I'd rather not right now. Later, you say to yourself, later. And then later, later again. Well, there's a new entrant in this historic line of sayings, and it may send you scurrying to your handy wipes. It turns out you are your mobile phone. A study conducted by the University of California, San Diego's medical school, in collaboration with its school of pharmacy, studied the mobile phones of 39 volunteers and scanned not for their selection of apps, not for what information they viewed, or even their usage. No, they scanned for molecules and microbes. First, let's just stop and think about it. Most of the time, you and only you hold your phone. And you hold it a lot during the day, at night, while we work, play, get bored, etc. For some people, just holding their phone in their hand is either a replacement for old Teddy or just a habit. They arrive phone in hand and send it down where they can have access to it. I know someone who has set his phone such that every time a message arrives or an email lands, it doesn't quietly vibrate. No, it sets off a piercing ding, and somehow the phone actually flashes. In a recent half-hour conversation, we were treated to this reward no less than six times. No doubt, science should study that as well. But the study I'm referring to was published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Science. And this paper is more significant than it appears. In fact, it introduces the concept of skin-associated lifestyle chemistries found on personal belongings as a form of trace evidence. First, you need what is called a representative personal belonging, like your phone. 
and then science can provide insights into personal lifestyle profiles by predicting the kind of beauty product the individual uses, the food he or she eats, the medications he or she takes, or the places he or she has been. While sort of creepy, you can definitely imagine the irate dad glaring at his miscreant teenage son, who has just come home at 3.30 in the morning. Pop holds out the evidence bag and says, Okay, sonny boy, put your phone right in here. Well, the evidence bag is actually the clue. According to the journal, the chemical interpretation of traces recovered from objects found on a crime scene can help a criminal investigator learn about the lifestyle of the individual who used or touched these objects. Boy, we sure are a long way down the road from fingerprints. Even DNA doesn't make this kind of contextual contribution. But it still seems troubling. Will the next billionaire be someone who comes up with a material that will kill all the microbes on contact? Even so, we're moving into a world where molecules and microbes can be read on the spot. That will change a lot of things. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. Five Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Five Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, science looks at religion and non-religion, today and down through the ages. And you may be very religious, but not believe in an afterlife. The seven and a half billion humans on Earth have a lot of different beliefs. Then on Tech Nation Health, we hear from Dr. Carl Ware, the director of the Infectious and Inflammatory Disease Center at Sanford Burnham Prebys Medical Discovery Institute. We'll get insight into viruses, autoimmune diseases, and more. In Michael Shermer's book, Heavens on Earth, the Scientific Search for the Afterlife, Immortality, and Utopia, one fact stood out to me. There are seven and a half billion humans on Earth. Never before have we had so many people. But this represents only 7% of all the humans who have ever lived. Yeah, the estimate is uh, over 100 billion have lived and died before us, so about 107 billion total. If you go back about 50,000 years, obviously it's a ballpark back-of-the-envelope calculation, but if you use uh, normal rates of population growth, which are pretty slow in hunter-gatherer populations, and then it you know picks up after the year uh, zero and then really skyrockets up in the last 150 years or so, but... It looks like it's going to level off and, and even start going down by 2100 or so. Of course, the context I calculate that in is, uh, you know, where are all those souls if reincarnation is true or if we're going to bring everybody back, you know, where are you going to put them <laughs> and so on in the context of my book. Well, it's still very interesting because for millennia, if you will, people have been thinking and talking and believing in the afterlife. Maybe not everybody, but this is a constant theme. 
I think so, yeah, and and it's certainly a, a big part of religion, but not just religion. I mean, it's the kind of thing that any thinking person at some point comes to grips with. Uh, I don't think people people are obsessed with it. I don't think they're terrorized by it. I deal with this theory called uh, terror management theory that holds that people are, are terrorized by the th- prospects of death, so they become creative, hardworking, productive people as a, as a way, way of dealing with the anxiety of the death terror. I, I don't think that's correct, and I, I, I feel I... Uh, dealt with that pretty skeptically in the book. But more more to the point, it's the kind of thing that I think does build religions. You know, they have something to offer in that regard. And it's the kind of thing secularists like myself, I'm an atheist, but uh, or humanists that try to construct a worldview that's positive for living in the here and now have to deal with. And uh, so the, you know, to sort of cut to the chase of the point of my book is whether there's an afterlife or not, you know, no one knows for sure. Um, but it doesn't really matter because we don't live in the afterlife. We live in this life. Uh, you know, we don't live in the hereafter. We live in the here and now. So really, wh- whether there's an afterlife or not, what you do now is what counts. So we should really make the most of it. Well, just listening to you speak then, you kind of caught yourself. Well, I'm an atheist. Actually, I'm a humanist. You know, there was a time when when the real big divide was did you believe in God or didn't you? And that's independent of do you believe in an afterlife or not? Yeah, I think so. Uh, uh, interesting survey. I, I cite early in the book on uh, a, a huge survey of American uh, beliefs. And, uh, and of course, there's about, uh, you know, somewhere around, say, 10% atheists. And of those, about a third said that they believe in the continuation of the, of the personhood, self or soul or something beyond death. Now, they're not becoming, you know, Christians on their deathbed or something like that. They don't believe in an afterlife in the form of, of a heaven. But I, I think a lot of uh, people think that somehow the soul does continue, maybe in some quantum field or, or some force or, you know, something like that. And they're turning, or maybe in a Buddhist sense, they're turning to people like Deepak Chopra or kind of Western Buddhism or you know, reincarnation of some kind. And or they're or or they're going the route that I deal with a lot in the book, which is actual scientific attempts to achieve immortality, like mind uploading, uploading your consciousness and your memories into the cloud and turning it on, and, and you get to continue that. Uh, you know, these are just wild ideas, but the fact that we can even conceive of them uh, appears to make us unique in the animal kingdom. And as far as we know, no other species has an idea of an afterlife. You know, we know that some mammals grieve, like elephants grieve at the loss of a loved one. That makes sense for a social mammalian species. But we don't know that that means they're sitting there thinking, well, uh, you know, he's now off in elephant heaven. Uh, you know, we don't think they we think they probably don't have that I, uh, that belief, but we do. So what do we do with it? And that that's where it gets interesting. Well, whether you believe in God or you don't believe in God or you have a religion or you don't have a religion, three out of four Americans, roughly speaking, believe in an afterlife. Yeah, it's it's pretty common. I mean, uh, it varies by religion, of course. Mormons are the highest, Jews are the lowest. Um, but and as I said, even even a lot of atheists believe in something that continues. So, so part of the the reason, if we kind of bore into the cognitive neuroscience of it, which I do in in a chapter that. Uh, we know from the studies of children at a very early age, we're talking maybe three to four, uh, children seem, seem to be able to conceive of an afterlife. That is to say, you, you show them a little puppet show. This is at Paul Bloom's lab at Yale where a little puppet alligator munches a little mouse alligator, and now he's dead. And then you ask the children, well, 
this isn't a cheery experiment. <laughs> yes, yeah, so the parents have where, they signed off on this. <laughs> yeah, they sign off for this. Yeah, so yes, you, you know, yes, the, the the little kids. Where's the mouse now? And 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 most of them think the mouse is continues. It's 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 gone somewhere else. It, even though its body is dead, the, you know, its its essence continues. Um, uh, and and Bloom calls this that that we're natural born duelists. It, it, it's not something you learn. It's just something you're born with. The idea that there's an essence to a thing that continues on, that that exists separate from the physical body, even though it might be inside of it. And and upon the death of the physical body, that essence, just call it the soul. That's the word we seem to prefer. It continues on somewhere else. And uh, of course, children don't have any idea what what that might be, but they have this idea that you know the mouse is in this other place, and he misses his mommy, and he's hungry and thirsty, and he's scared about the alligator and, and that you know this idea that continues so this starts very early and from there we just build uh narratives on top of it which is you know what the whole afterlife in in different religious scenarios is like and i explore that in terms of the history of heaven you know it has a history there's a lot of different versions of the afterlife from different uh from different religions and and there's no there's no algorithm or, or method we can apply to decide which is the best theory like in science we have competing hypotheses and we run experiments and collect data to see which one is most likely to be true or false and and then continue to proceed from there there's nothing like that in religion religion just has its different beliefs and if you know you're Jewish, you believe this. If you're Christian, you believe something else, or Buddhist, or Hindu, and and they vary quite a bit, and and they're oftentimes mutually exclusive. You know, they can't all be right, unless heaven is entirely in your head, in which case they could all be right in that sense. But most people conceive of it not as just in your head, but actually out there somewhere. Well, there's a lot of commonality in things that we call the Judeo-Christian ethic or uh, many things that we share. And a lot of people think that the only thing we don't share is whether or not Jesus was God. But it turns <laughs> well, out yeah. there's a heaven component here. That that's right, and um, you know if you're if you don't believe Jesus is the Son of God or or you know part of the trilogy, and therefore he's partially deific in, in any case, and and was resurrected, then you might you might as well not be a Christian. I mean, Jews and Christians and Muslims share a belief in the same God, but they you know Jews and Muslims do not accept that Jesus was resurrected. It's it's one thing to say Jesus probably existed and he was probably crucified. Uh, even I go go that far, but to say that he was resurrected from the dead, raised from the dead, and, and is now existing at the seat of God, next to the seat of God, uh, Muslims and Jews don't believe that. Okay, why not? Uh, you know, Christians seem to think that this is so well proven that they can marshal up, uh, you know, books full of evidence. Well, if it was so obvious, why don't your fellow... Uh, Muslims and Jews who believe in the same God, uh, why don't they accept that? So, uh, my book's not about that, but but the idea that you're going to live forever if you believe the right religion, well, which one? And you know, the Pascal's wager, you might as well believe as opposed to not believe because what's what's to lose? Well, there's a lot to lose if you bet on the wrong God. You know, which is or the wrong religion? You know, which is the right one? And there's no way to know. From a scientist perspective, which I am, there's no experiment we're going to run and go, oh, so it's the Jewish faith is the correct one, or the Muslim faith, or the Christian, or the Buddhist faith. There's no experiment we're going to run and go, yep, that's the right one. You might say it's right for me. Like This is the one I was raised in, and I'm most comfortable there, so it's right for me. Fine. But from a scientist perspective, we want to know what's actually out there in the world. And that, I, I claim, we can't. We can't. There's no experiment we can run to determine that. In the Jewish faith, is there an afterlife? 
Well, originally there wasn't. Uh, you just go nowhere. I mean, like when people ask me, well, what do you think happens after you die? I say the same thing. You go to the same place you were before you were born, which is, you know, yeah, nowhere. Where, that I mean, simple question, where were you before you were born? Yeah. <laughs> that's, it was, I mean, everyone goes, well, me. what are you talking about? <laughs> I, I wasn't anywhere before I was born. Right. And that's what Jews originally thought. Now, um, modern Jews have a different belief. Uh, again, about 48% say they believe in a, a place that you actually go to. Now, it's interesting that less than half, though, accept that. You know, So we're talking about the majority of Jews do not believe in the afterlife. So that's interesting. They're still Jewish, culturally Jewish. Maybe um, some of that, those 52% actually believe in God, but not the afterlife. So there's much great variation there across the different religions. And we know that, that if you go back at least about 100,000 years that uh, human groups buried their dead, we think. We think they intentionally buried their dead. Well, it's one thing to say they intentionally buried their dead. I mean, you have to do something if, you're, you, know, if, you, if you have a group member that's, that's died uh, in, in your cave or in your little tiny uh, plot of land there. You've got to get them under the ground. You could move. <laughs> you could move, yeah, that's right. Uh, but, you know, scavengers and so on, you, you have some respect. So you bury the dead. That, that doesn't necessarily mean uh, a belief in an afterlife. Now, when they put grave goods in there, tools and, and other things like flowers, then we, we start thinking, well, maybe, uh, you know, maybe they had some sense that, you know, uh, Uncle Og is going off to the great hunting ground in the sky or something like that. Of course, those things don't fossilize, so we don't know. But grave goods like tools, for example, you know, why, why would you leave tools with a dead person? So the idea is that maybe the, the ancient ones here were thinking they're, they're going off to another place and they'll need the tools. You know, maybe that, that may be the case. In a way, it's like when we leave flowers for our loved ones at a cemetery now, uh, we're not thinking the flat, we're sending them off with these flowers. We're, it's a, just a tribute, a, a way of honoring the dead, a way of saying, uh, this is my loved one, and here is my six token signal that uh, of how much I love them. I'm leaving them flowers. Makes me feel good, um, and I would want somebody to do that for me and so on. And, and, and that's not necessarily belief in an afterlife. So, again, we don't really know for sure when this whole idea started. Well, let's slice it a different way. Three out of four Americans roughly believe in some kind of afterlife. Three percent of Swedes believe in an afterlife? Well, yeah. So Northern European countries have become very secular since the Second World War. And there's different theories about that. You know, if your government takes care of the poor and and there's a tight safety social safety net and, and everybody's taken care of uh, pretty well, then what do you need religion for? That's one theory that, you know, what, what are religions for? Well, one of the main purposes is to take care of people that need help. And so if your government does it, then maybe you don't need religion. Uh, in any case, whatever the reason is, Northern European countries are very secular. They're not very religious, and they have the lowest rates of belief in an afterlife in, anywhere in the world. And uh, and they seem to be doing just fine. I mean, in terms of like this idea that that you know religion and their the offering of an afterlife is a palliative for the, uh, the you know the, the difficulties of life. Well, Northern European countries are the highest in self-reported happiness and life satisfaction surveys. These are done every year uh, all over the world, and consistently these secular countries come come out the highest. So, uh, and they're the least religious. And 
And in terms of like the Western democracies, America is the most religious by far of all the, say, top 20 Western democracies in the world. We're, we're the most religious. And we have the worst scores on, on social societal health, things like uh, suicide, homicide, teen pregnancy, abortion, STD rates, um, depression rates, uh, you know, infant mortality rates. It, it just goes on and on. What, you know, I, I, now I'm not saying religion causes these social ills, but if religion is supposed to be so good for society and making people moral or the promise of an afterlife makes people happier, it, it apparently doesn't work here in America. You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guest today is Michael Shermer. You may know him as a longtime monthly columnist for Scientific American or as the editor of Skeptic.com or from his many books, including The Moral Arc, How Science and Reason Lead Humanity Toward Truth, Justice, and Freedom. He's here today with Heavens on Earth, the scientific search for the afterlife, immortality, and utopia. Given what you were just saying, um, attitudes about our lives are also important, independent of of what religion we may or may not have. And we just spoke with Steven Pinker, giving us statistic after statistic about, about why the human condition is getting better. But there are still a number of people who are very pessimistic about our life and our society, not just nationally, but also globally. What's going on here? There's got to be something human there. No, there is. It's called the negativity bias. And uh, we evolved to pay attention to uh, negative things more than positive things and to put more weight on things that are bad that could happen versus things that are good that could happen for a, a pretty fundamental reason. That is, there's more ways for things to go wrong than things to go right. There's more ways to take yourself out of the Darwinian gene pool than there are to be successful in the Darwinian gene pool. So our, our minds are attuned to looking out for dangers and risks and being very careful about that sort of thing. And, and paying attention to bad news actually makes good sense as opposed to good news. Good news is usually incremental. Um, like in, in Pinker's book, uh, you know, he, he documents these, you know, slow rates of, of progress across different, um, domains like, you know, lifespan and, and health and, and prosperity and the decline of poverty, things like this. But, but it's all incremental, like half a percent, one percent each year. You, you hardly notice it. But, you know, plane crash goes down, terrorist attack, you know, shark attack. I mean, these things, you know, they make the it news. It sounds like um, a review of the media. <laughs> Is well, there a for media sure. bias towards negativity? Yes, there's a total media bias, but it's not. I wouldn't call it a bias. I mean, that's what the media is tasked to do: is to cover school shootings, not to cover schools that aren't shot up. No one's going to send a reporter to a school and stand there all day, going, "Well, another day, another school not shot up. Let's go to the next one." And uh, <laughs> but the moment there's a school shooting, of course, there you know the helicopters are there, and you know, and, and so on to cover it because that's what you're supposed to do fine. But we just have to, you know, keep a check on this and, and follow the trend lines, not the headlines, if we want to know if things are getting better or worse. And they're really getting better, but we tend to think they're getting worse because of this negativity bias. I mean, there's more words in the English language for negative emotions than positive emotions, for example. Uh, we remember, um, let's say, the number of critical comments on social media versus number of positive comments. You might get a 100 to 1 positive to negative ratio, but you'll remember the one 
or a book review in my case, you know, I'll get like a dozen positive reviews and then one negative one will come in and I'll, I'll just go crazy about the one. It's like, what? Okay, calm down, Trimmer. You know, you got 12 positive reviews. <laughs> yeah, but that one. <laughs> um, they call this a loss aversion. That is losses hurt twice as much as gains feel good. So you want to get somebody to take a gamble to, you know, place a, a stock market trade, for example, or invest in a company. Um, they have to feel that the potential payoff is about double what the loss would uh, feel like. In, in other words, it, uh, you know, losses hurt twice as much as gains feel good. So we're, we're, we're naturally inclined to be risk averse for those very good Darwinian reasons. That's what can take you out of the gene pool. So most of us, most of the time are risk averse. The, there is an entrepreneurial personality, the kind of person that's a high risk taker. Um, you know, the, the Steve Jobs of the world, those kinds of uh, successful entrepreneurs we hear about. And, and that's a good thing to have. But what we don't hear about because of the, the bias of reporting and, and book writing is all the high risk takers that, you know, dropped out of college, moved back to their parents' house in the 1970s and started a, a computer company and they went bankrupt. That's what happens to most of them. <laughs> and no one's going to make, bio, you know, write biographies or make films about these people that failed. So we have a bias there about that. Uh, and so most of us, though, are, are risk averse and for good reason. So that's the section in Heavens on Earth on Utopia. That is, uh, we have this idea that things used to be great in the past. They're not good now. Uh, but if we can just return to the way it used to be, you know, make America great again or, you know, and hope and change, we're going to do something different now. And uh, this idea that there was something special back when and now, uh, it's bad, but we can get back to this paradisiacal state. I mean, in a way, that's what uh, most of the religions offer is, you know, heaven in a way is a return to, uh, uh, you know, a prelapsarian before the lapse, before the fall of mankind in the Christian version, uh, where sin was introduced into the world when, you know, uh, Eve tricked Adam into eating the apple. Uh, and then and then the fall and sin and original sin and all that stuff. And now things are terrible. And, and so the whole idea of returning to heaven, it really, it's just returning to the way it used to be before the fall when, you know, things were great. So this is a very common theme throughout literature, history, religion, um, even in, you know, political ideologies, you know, Nietzsche and Marx and, and you know, anarcho-capitalists from, you know, from the far left to the far right, you know, people have these ideas that, you know, just this, if we just do this one thing, we can get to this utopian state. And, uh, and it never works. It always fails. And uh, and the reason is is because life is way more complicated than any of these scenarios can present. And uh, I conclude it's it's a big mistake to aim for utopia. We should aim for what I call what Kevin Kelly calls protopia, just incremental steps in, in improvement to make life a little bit better tomorrow than it is today. Just a little bit. Don't aim for perfection because if you do, you know, think bad things usually happen. Uh, so just aim for small improvement. Now, you did talk about how three-year-olds deal with death, but in fact, you go over the full arc from birth through 12 years old. It's an evolution of how humans evolve at a very young age to dealing with death. Yeah, so uh, developmental psychologists have studied this and uh, you know, they show, again, from a very early age, there's a sense of a continuation of this all or something like that. 
usually it starts with a pet or a grandparent, uh, that they're not coming back. And that takes many years to get, get, you know, get the full impact of that. And there's something like developmental stages, although there's reasons to be skeptical of any kind of stage theory in psychology, because rarely does everyone go through all five stages or whatever, death and dying or awareness of death and those sorts of things. But as a framework for talking about it, yes, there's kind of these incremental understandings that the physical body um, does age and break down and then eventually it fails and that the person is not coming back. There's an absolute final termination of life. But there's also usually, uh, you know, that they've gone somewhere else and that there's a sense that the soul represents the person. I've been speaking with Michael Shermer. He's here today with Heavens on Earth, the scientific search for the afterlife, immortality, and utopia. We'll talk more after a break. Podcasts of Tech Nation and Tech Nation Health are available at NPR One, iTunes, Stitcher, and other podcast syndication outlets. Coming up in the second half of our show on Tech Nation Health, we hear from Dr. Carl Ware, the director of the Infectious and Inflammatory Disease Center at Sanford Burnham Previs Medical Discovery Institute. Stay with us. Listening to Tech Nation, I've been speaking with Michael Shermer, the author of Heavens on Earth, the scientific search for the afterlife, immortality, and utopia. In the book, I have a chapter on the problem of identity. Who are you? And here we get into the weeds of sort of philosophical and neuroscience issues of is there even a self? Uh, I mean, we certainly feel like there's a self, like a whole uh, unit, an entity that represents, you know, you, Moy Ragan, me, Michael Shermer. We're two different individuals, and I'm me, and, and you are you. But what does that actually mean? It's a set of memories. Um, it's a it's a collection of thoughts and feelings and, and emotions, memories of, of who we have been and who we would like to become. And that package deal is me. 
Now, we get into the, the weeds of this for two reasons. One, religious versions of the afterlife, you know, is that what's replicated when you're resurrected and you're up in heaven with Jesus, say, if you're a Christian? What's up there? Is it your physical body or is it just your soul or both? You know, there's some Christian sects that say it's your physical body, to which I say, okay, how old am I when I'm up there? It's like, what? <laughs> yeah, well, if it's a physical body, it's got to have an age, you know, well, 30, because that's the age. Everybody Jesus knows that's the best age, right? In the that's the there. best age. Your body you know, works like, and you're pretty smart. There you go. <laughs> that's right. But, you know, I'm 63 now. So to my interlocutors, I say, well, what happened to the 33 years of memories if I'm 30 when I'm up there? You know, are, are those all those packed into that younger brain? Um, okay, if and if it's not the physical body that's resurrected, you know, essentially, and that also has some interesting problems. It's like the Star Trek transporter problem. What actually gets transported? You know, when Captain Kirk gets beamed to the planet, is it his actual atoms that are moved, or is he copied and 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 pasted into the uh, new planet as a copy? You know, with new, with different atoms. And if so, then what happened to the original Captain Kirk? Is it, is he still there in the transporter? Do we have to destroy him, and then the copy becomes him? It's the same kind. Of thing, you know, when I'm transported to heaven with Jesus after my death, you know, if it if it's my soul, is it a copy or is it the original soul that just kind of moves, slides out of the grave and up, uh, you know, it's up into heaven, or or is it copy and pasted up there? And okay, so so who cares? Well, what matters? This matters is because. You know, we're not a set of fixed uh, entities. Your memories, for example, that represent who you are, they're always changing. You, you lose a lot of them. You edit them. You change them. I mean, the, the memory I have now of being 20 is not an actual, like, video recording in, in the little theater of my mind that I can play back and watch. It's, that's not it at all. There's nothing like that. Uh, it's, you know, it's it's probably memories of when I was 30 remembering that I was 20 and 40 remembering when I was 30, remembering when I was 20. The memories are edited, so there's no fixed set of memories that represents me. So what gets what gets copied, like, and, and this has implications for science because there's a whole movement to upload your mind. Well, if I take a snapshot of my connectome, the analog to the genome of all your synaptic connections in your brain that represents all your memories, if we took the copy today and put it up into heaven or in the cloud or whatever, um, but that's just me today. I mean, that, that's different than who I was yesterday, last year, 20 years ago, or who I'll be 20 years from now. You know, it's just a snapshot. That's not really me. So you can see once you start thinking about these issues, uh, you know, seriously, it's like, wait a minute. None of this really makes sense. Hey, come on. Come on, Michael. You know, you get to heaven <laughs> and you get what you want. So, yeah, you know, when I'm going uh, to uh, pick and choose here, I'm mixing and matching. I'm not trying to get any logic here. <laughs> well, I, I'll tell you, when I was in my Christian days in college, I, I was t- telling my philosophy professor about Jesus and heaven and the whole thing. And he wanted to know if there are golf courses and tennis courts in heaven. Sure. And I'm like, what? <laughs> uh, I don't know. I guess so. Why? Because I'd be bored otherwise. In, in other words, what, what, what are you going to do when you get there? You know, oh, it's going to be, you know, perfect. There's going to be, you know, milk and honey and in, in love and yeah, but that gets boring after a while. I mean, there isn't there something to do? Yeah, get I what mean, you want. Bat- you get what you want. <laughs> well, okay, and I'm okay with that if that's fine. Whatever and that, that can is. change over eternity. You always get a tea time. Change it, over attorney's eternity. a long. Yeah, that's right. You get a tea time every day. Uh, I mean, attorney's a long time, especially toward the end, as Woody Allen said. And, well, I mean, most of us like Woody Allen. You know, we don't want to live on through our work. We want to live in on our apartment. Okay, so if there's something like the equivalent of a heavenly apartment where you get to continue to live on forever, what do you do there? 
And, you know, maybe the answer is what you said, you, whatever you want. Okay. Now well, <laughs> I don't, you know, there just as science can't study some things, I think, you know, I don't think some of this stuff we can answer. It's like, what the heck does this mean? There are religions and spiritual uh, communities who believe that the soul then comes back and reanimates other new uh, beings, be they human or non-human. And it's like, well, you're not uh, bored then because you, sorry, I got to go. Uh, I have to go become another human, as an example. That's in the reincarnation uh, yeah. So yeah. there are many of these. And, and, you know, I think part of this is that we're going back to science here. We're going back to evidence. And part of this has to do with faith. Organized religion is a prescription, if you will, very detailed prescription in many cases. But then it says, okay, you have your faith. And every person, once you take the leap of faith and you make it your own, then you really do make it your own. You say, okay, here's how I feel about it. And there is no science there that can examine that other than perhaps what do all these people believe? Because we certainly can't study the afterlife. That's right. So, you know, maybe what Jesus meant when he said, you know, the kingdom of God is within you, you know, maybe he meant heaven is not a place you're going to. It It is here now. It's in you. It's what you make of it. Uh, I actually uh, play with this idea at the end of my chapter on religious versions of the afterlife, the monotheisms. And uh, it, it seems to me that's a reasonable position to take because there's not a place to go. The whole point is to make life better now. And of course, he's talking to uh, first century Jews who were oppressed by the Roman Empire. And, and it's it, in a way, it's kind of an uplifting message like, yeah, yeah, we got to make our lives better now here, not not. You know, wait for like Mother Teresa uh, attending to the poor, telling him, you know, hang in there. It's going to be great in the next life. Forget that. I want life now to be good. <laughs> so, I, you know, it could be something like that. And if that's what heaven is, OK, fine. Uh, I'm OK with that, especially if I can see my loved ones that have passed over, my parents and my friends like Stephen Jay Gould and Carl Sagan, my mentors and friends. And, and to see them again would be marvelous if, if, if something like that happens. Perhaps we should go back and study all those people now who want to live forever and are working on it to see exactly what their birth to 12-year-old experience was because they want to live forever. They seem to think that they can make their bodies be immortal. Yeah, so this is the um, so this is kind of the crux of my book uh, is the scientific attempts to do this, and this ranges from the transhumanists and extropians. They're against entropy, which is the central problem of of of, of life. Is the second law of thermodynamics means we're always running down, and uh, so we have to push back against that. That is you know, the the first purpose of life is is to push back against entropy. So how do you do that? Well, I mean, it starts with obvious stuff we are most of us hopefully already do diet and exercise and you know don't take crazy risks and you know just try to live a, a long healthy life the problem is of course at some point entropy kicks in and, and aging happens and you know no one's going to live beyond the upper ceiling of about 120 years so i debunked the notion that people live t today people live twice as long as they used to uh, no one's living beyond 120 years what 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 we mean by that is more and more people are getting up to that upper ceiling you mentioned happy versus life satisfaction. Oh, yeah. And yeah. life yeah. satisfaction um, in the United States, I mean, we don't really teach it. We don't really talk about it. We don't uh, think about it in those terms. Are you successful or are you failing? You know, 
Silicon Valley, a culture of failure, you know, and it's like this life satisfaction on an individual basis is often not talked about. What are the elements that go into life satisfaction that I know science will measure? So um, this is in the end of my book, the last chapter, uh, in, in which I basically say, well, if there's no afterlife or heaven, or even if there is, who knows, um, you know, what's the point of life? Okay, so, and, and it's not just be happy, <laughs> you know, just just plug into the dopamine uh, or morphine drip and, and sit there, play video games uh, on your virtual reality the rest of your life because there's no point. No, no, no. There's a difference between being happy and having a happy life and a meaningful life, and the research on this by psychologists, for example, Roy Baumeister wrote this great paper called, uh, it was the, the, the difference between a meaningful life and a happy life. And that, you know, hap- to, to get happiness is more short term. Like if I go out for drinks and dinner with my friends tonight, I'm happy. It's fun. And I feel good when I do it, but it's short lived. Uh, you know, I get home. It's like, well, okay, now what? Um, but if I caretake for a parent, which I've done uh, for two of my four parents, I had divor- uh, divorced and step parents, you know, this wasn't fun at all. Uh, I mean, it was unpleasant. It was exhausting, you know, emotionally draining. And, you know, I get home. It's like, Bleh, that was, but I felt better about myself. Like, hey, I, I have a more meaningful life. I did this thing that wasn't fun, but it made me feel good about myself that I took care of somebody who loved me and I loved them. And, and that's what family is all about. And, you know, so that's kind of the distinction. Uh, one, one of the distinctions is, is the time frame. So, and future going forward future, you know, making long-term plans or looking back in your life to see where you've come from so you can plot out a course of where you'd like to go, that leads to more meaning, feelings of meaningfulness as opposed to happy, which is, again, this kind of more in the now um, uh, a worldview. And, and there, there's good points to both of them. I mean, there's that Eckhart Tolle book, uh, you know, The Power of Now, which I totally get. I write about Deepak Chopra and, and Eckhart Tolle in my chapter on uh, on uh, Eastern traditions and the afterlife. And, you know, their whole thing is in Buddhism, you know, now is the only thing we have. The past has already happened. You can't change it. The future hasn't happened yet. Now is all you have. Yeah. Okay. I get that. I totally get that. And it's a way of reducing stress and anxiety, worrying about things you can't change. Um, but, you know, as I told Deepak, my mortgage is due next week. Uh, if I just continue to live in the now, can I just tell them uh, I don't have to pay? <laughs> no. <laughs> you know, you got to make long-term plans. And, uh, you know, so working hard, which is not always fun, but, you know, it, but it gives me a rewarding life because I have a home to live in and the family to support. And so, you know, that that's a more meaningful thing, even though it isn't doesn't make me happy in the short term doing it. Well, that's the distinction there, I think, uh, toward the end of the book. So what's the purpose of life? It's, you know, it's it's to, it's to live a meaningful life, not not just a happy life. I think what's so difficult for so many people is, you know, if they really think about it, we shouldn't even exist. I mean, it's like, how did all this happen, you know? Uh, but the truth is, even if you focus on life satisfaction and the power of now, it seems to me that you need to have a very strong sense of self uh, and, and personal identity. Right. So, uh, you know, part of the, the way of leading a meaningful life is to know who you are. I mean, be true to yourself, you know, follow not not follow your bliss, but follow who it is you you are that that gives you a sense of meaning. What 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 kind of meaningful work? I mean, we know meaningful work makes people feel like they have a more meaningful life. A reason to get up in the morning, get out of the house, and, and get off to do this productive thing. What that particular thing is depends entirely on on you and you alone. So you have to 
you have to try a lot of different things when you're young to figure out, well, what am I good at? What do I enjoy doing uh, versus what I'm not good at or what I hate doing? And there's so much variation there that, you know, the only way to find out is to try it, which is why I always encourage my college students, you know, take a lot of different classes, try a little, a lot of different things. And, and if, if you don't like college, that's okay too, you know, go work for a while or travel, you know, just try different things. It's the only way to figure it out. No one can do that for you. So in the book, I, I really deal with this idea of the, the uniqueness of every individual, you know, the idea that uh, of cloning or whatever, you know, even clones, uh, it's not you, e- even a perfect copy of you right now, a snapshot of you, the moment you start living two separate lives, then you're like twins. You have different life experiences, different life paths, you know, uh, new neural connections are made in one brain, but not the other, you know, genes turn on or off in, in different, in the two different bodies. And so the, the moment you diverge from this uh, copy, uh, that's not you anymore. And so this is why I debunked this idea of, you know, if we had a, a copy of my connectome stored in the cloud and then a copy of my body at this cloning company, I'm talking science fiction here, uh, and, and I was killed in a car accident or a cycling accident, let's say, and my wife can just go, you know, call me up and get the new copy of my body and upload my brain, uh, my connectome into the brain of the clone, and voila, there I am. Um, yeah, you but know, you but, could but, actually ask for a few more features, right? No, yes, that's right. I'd like him to be two inches taller. 10 pounds lighter and, and you know, love whatever. to do the dishes love to do yes, the dishes right <laughs> household chores he loves household chores there's yeah, so, so many there's so many things to talk about and think about in your book so thank you michael for joining us i hope you come back and see us again oh you're welcome thanks for having me my guest today is michael Shermer. the book is heavens on earth the scientific search for the afterlife immortality and utopia it's published by henry holt i'm moira gunn you're listening to Tech Nation. Welcome to Tech Nation Health, reimagining the future of health and healthcare with the emergence of new technologies and breakthrough science. Have you ever heard the term homeostasis? It refers to the tendency of the human body to keep itself in equilibrium, such as maintaining your body's temperature at pretty much a constant 98.6 degrees. We'll hear that term today as I speak with Professor Carl Ware, the director of the Infectious and Inflammatory Disease Center at Sanford Burnham Prebys Medical Discovery Institute. I started by asking him about the new cancer immunotherapies. We keep hearing about checkpoint inhibitors, checkpoint activators, checkpoint regulators. What are they talking about? So, Maura, these are the mechanisms that help maintain homeostasis of your immune system. And part of the research that we do and the way we look at the immune system is that it's your sixth sense. And in that setting, it's a system that can recognize pathogens in the external environment, but also pathogens and uh, components of yourself internally. Um, It's how we maintain our gut microorganisms uh, and eat great food and drink great wine uh, without having an immune response against our intestines. So there's these homeostatic mechanisms controlled both in a positive sense to activate the immune system, but also in an inhibitory way to limit the immune system's ability to uh, over um, activate and, and end up killing your own tissue. And that's what, when we develop autoimmune diseases, 
like rheumatoid arthritis or Crohn's disease, and it's a form of an inflammatory bowel disease, your immune system's capability of maintaining homeostasis is gone. So the immune system has these mechanisms to keep itself in check so that we don't destroy our normal tissue, but at the same time, it's capable of killing cells that get infected with viruses or uh, holding all those microbes in your intestinal tract, in your intestinal tract. Don't let them get into your bloodstream because, boy, if they get into your bloodstream, it triggers a very powerful immune response. We call that septic shock. You can die. You can die. It's a lethal uh, immune response in that setting. So when we're looking at these new cancer drugs, the immune system is now being triggered so that they'll go after the cancer cells. But that doesn't work for every cancer or everybody. That's true. It doesn't. Only in a small fraction, about 10 or 15 percent. But boy, if you're one of those 10 or 15 percent of people that have a lethal cancer like melanoma or lung cancer, um, getting a treatment like that can actually lead to the cure and eradication of that cancer. So it's Complete very cure. Complete cure. The problem, uh, there's always a side effect, and this is a specific side effect because you've activated the immune system. What happens is that there are cells in your body, these white blood cells, that begin to think uh, some of your normal tissue is abnormal and try and kill it. And you develop what we call autoimmune disease. Your immune system is attacking normal tissue and causing inflammation in the gut or in your joints, in your brain. Uh, places that it shouldn't be happening. Is there a way to predict that? No, not at this point in time. Um, But we are moving forward with advances in genomic sequencing and understanding uh, what's happening in all the genetic levels uh, in an individual. Uh, We're moving forward, but uh, we still don't fully understand. In your center, you're studying how to bring the immune system into homeostasis. Basically, just bring it back to normal. Right. Uh, everything is good. So that would actually work hand-in-hand hand with some of these cancer treatments to say, great, we got the cancer, now we got to bring the system back. Is that Would that be fair to say? I think that's a reasonable way to look at it. Um, what we're doing at the Sanford Burnham Prevost Institute is to, um, and, and my course of study over the last 30 years is we've been taking clues from viruses that have learned how to trick the immune system and stay persistent in our bodies for our lifetimes. And one of the groups of viruses that do that are herpes viruses. Uh, You may recognize that term because it's uh, uh, members of the herpes virus family include the chicken box virus. Um, And it stays with you for your entire life. And when we get to be old, uh, it can reactivate and cause a very serious neurological disease known as zoster. Um, herpes simplex virus causes cold sores. Um, the ones that often you see re erupt on someone's lip or in around the facial area. It's because those viruses hide out in your neurons. And they can persist there for the life of the, of the individual. Sometimes they don't come back at all. And the uh, immune system can't see them. The immune system does see them, but for some reasons, the immune system can't eliminate uh, those virally infected cells, Um, and exactly why, we don't know, but we're beginning to uncover it. 
One of the other models we study is a herpes virus known as cytomegalovirus. It's a beta herpes virus. You usually acquire it as a young kid in a nursery school where there's lots of hugging and kissing and saliva swapping going Thank on. Thank you for sharing. Yeah, yeah, lots of sharing, exactly. That virus causes uh, in, in normal individuals a very uh, unnoticeable infection, and you carry that virus with you the rest of your life. We've been able to analyze the genome of that virus, and uh, we've identified dozens of genes in that virus that look a lot like our normal cellular proteins that regulate the immune system. And there's a couple of genes in there that look a lot like some of these checkpoint regulators. And that's where we've taken our clues to begin to think about how those viral genes modify the immune system. And, and so in that setting, we've been able to take those viral genes and their normal cellular counterparts and re-engineer them so that they now behave like the viral protein and can help reestablish homeostasis of the immune system by inhibiting these very powerful uh, cells in your body, the white blood cells, uh, the lymphocytes, that can have this power to, to kill normal cells. Now let's just go to the autoimmune systems that uh, we're familiar with, rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, etc. Um, are those just simply part of what you're studying, or do they have a special aspect to them? Well, we have a special focus on autoimmune disease because we're engineering these proteins, these checkpoint regulators, to turn on the inhibitory pathways that will help reestablish homeostasis to dampen down the immune system in those patients with autoimmune disease and and limit the inflammation. Um, you know, we uh, immunologists have been successful in developing some therapies that do work very well for some patients with rheumatoid arthritis or psoriasis, um, these are called TNF inhibitors. TNF stands for tumor necrosis factor. This is a cytokine that's released by white blood cells that has the ability to trigger very powerful infl inflammation in the joints, uh, in, in rheumatoid arthritis or in the skin. And we know now that there are other cytokines that also participate in that inflammation. And we're learning how to block them. But it doesn't cure the autoimmune disease. So we're still trying to figure out how to trigger homeostasis that will, um, uh, will be maintained in that individual. I'm getting the picture that the immune system is really complex and really tricky. <laughs> um, it's complex. Uh, it keeps a lot of scientists employed uh, and keeps <laughs> us scratching our heads for eons now. But, you know, we, we've learned a lot about the immune system. Um, you know, the immune system is one of these uh, sensory perception uh, organs that we have. As I mentioned, I, I like to call it our sixth sense. And it's creative in the sense that it can recognize structures, antigens, if you will, we call them, that have never, chemical compounds that have never existed in the universe before. So it has that capability. A scientist known as Carl Landsteiner won a Nobel Prize uh, a few years back because uh, he did an experiment to actually synthesize a chemical compound never existing before in the universe and demonstrated that the immune system could recognize it. Right Fair. away he said, don't know, don't like you, get out of here. <laughs> That's right. The pattern matching capabilities <laughs> Is, they're enormous. It's enormous. And in fact, 
um, you know, there's emerging evidence that our brain can use similar uh, genetic mechanisms to diversify and generate creativity within the cells in the brain. Very powerful um, insight into how humans can uh, think beyond our, our limitations. So when we're now developing these new drugs, we've, we've found this, this link between the immune system and cancer. Do they necessarily have to become a little more complex? So with these drugs that we're trying to develop, one of the things that we've learned about cancer is that oftentimes uh, the mutations that happen in cancer not only change its ability to grow, but also make that cancer evade the immune system, and which seems a lot of parallels with how viruses do this. And in fact, that's probably how viruses adapt, adapted these mechanisms uh, in that setting. So uh, what we're now doing is the, with our understanding of how viruses evade the immune system, we now begin looking at cancer for all these other genes that we really didn't doesn't have a direct impact on how a cell grows, but that cell's got to grow in an environment with an immune system around it. And many cancers produce proteins that suppress the immune system. Uh, they, act, they activate these inhibitory pathways. Um, so in that setting, um, by blocking those, um, you may be able to activate the immune system to kill that cancer. But there are probably 35 to 50 and maybe more of these checkpoint regulators, and they may act in concert in ways that we don't yet understand. And that's where our research is pushing. So it's on. more complex. It's very complex. Would, would Could you say there's a similarity here to when we first could decode genomes and we we're saying, let's find the gene that causes this illness? And 10 minutes later we went, uh-oh. It's always a bunch of genes and a bunch of stuff. <laughs> yeah, our, that was really scientific how I said that bunch of genes, bunch <laughs> of stuff. But you know what I'm talking about. I understand what you're saying, and and um, yes, it is complicated. And in fact, um, one of my colleagues, uh, Nobel laureate Bruce Boitler, estimated that the response, the number of genes that is required to respond to help you protect you against uh, cytomegalovirus, he did this in mice takes about 3,000 genes, coordinated in a way that... Um, and they're not all sitting next to each other. No, no. In the six and they're not all expressed in the same type of cell. So it takes multiple different types of cells. So uh, it's, it is a complicated effort, but certainly glad we have it. Absolutely. Carl, thank you so much. These are very difficult things to describe. You've done a wonderful job. Thank you. Pleasure. Hope you come back and see us again. Thank you again. My pleasure. Professor Carl Ware is the director of the Infectious and Inflammatory Disease Center at Sanford Burnham Prebys Medical Discovery Institute in La Jolla. More information is available at sppdiscovery.org. For Tech Nation Health, I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. The director of technical production is Monte Carlos. And audio engineers include Howard Gelman, Seal Muller, and Larry Upton. Our theme music was composed by Ann Nochtrieb-Zessiger and Robert Powell. 
with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. TechNation and BiotechNation are productions of TechNation Media. I'm Paul Lancor.